Good morning, everyone. It is a beautiful day we have here today, not only to worship God, but He's given us a beautiful day outside. This is one of the most beautiful days of the year I've seen. So we are blessed to have this day, and most importantly, though, on this day, to have our time together to worship God. And I'm thankful to be able to be here with you today, and especially as I get to choose what we study in Hebrews chapter 3 today. So we've been kind of slowly making our way through Hebrews. We're in the third chapter now, and today I plan to cover the whole chapter. So if you'd like to turn to Hebrews chapter 3, that's where we'll be spending pretty much all of our time this morning. In Hebrews chapter 3, kind of our, our core keynote verse is the first one that says, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession. That's a simple sentence, and today I hope that you can take that and you can consider him. Because I can talk up here, I can get a presentation together, but ultimately our God has asked each one of us to consider him ourselves and to consider him individually. Let's go ahead and read the rest of the chapter before we begin. Going on in verse 2, it says this, So this Christ Jesus, who was faithful to him, who appointed him, as Moses also was faithful in all his house. For this one has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who built the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but he who built all things is God. And Moses indeed was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which would be spoken afterward, but Christ as a son over his own house whose house we are, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. Verse 7, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you will hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tested me, tried me, and saw my works forty years. Therefore, I was angry with that generation and said, They always go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Beware, brethren, lest there be any of be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily, while it's still called today, lest any of you be hardened through, de through the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. While it is said, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. In the last couple verses. For who, having heard, rebelled? Indeed, was it not all who came out of Egypt led by Moses? Now with whom was he angry forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who did not obey? So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. So these are the verses we're going to consider today, and just reading this chapter in isolation, it looks a little bit negative, a little bit warning, a little bit um, dangerous, but I think the context that it's immersed in in Hebrews is really a well-rounded one. And so let's back up for a minute to consider what he had just said in Hebrews 2. So the first verse of Hebrews 3 says, therefore, so it's, it's very important that we see what we're leading into the therefore with from in Hebrews 2. So this is a very important, I don't want to go back too far, but the previous verses lead right into it. So let's talk about Hebrews 2, uh, verses, beginning in verse 10. 
So he said, therefore consider him in light of all these things, in light of the fact that in verse 10, it was fitting for Jesus, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, and bringing many sons to glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. In light of that, consider him. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one. We're one with Jesus. Consider him because of that. For which reason he is not ashamed to call us brethren, saying, Here I am and the children whom God has given me. Inasmuch as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same. That through death he might destroy him who had the power of death. Jesus destroyed the devil who had the power of death. He took away that power that he had over us. That is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. The first verse in Hebrews 3 is going to say, consider him because of all this. Because he freed you from the fear of death. For indeed, he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. We learn that's us. Through God's promises. Verse 17, therefore in all things, he had to be made like his brethren. That he might be a merciful and faithful High priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is also he is able to aid those who are tempted. So the, the first verse in Hebrews 3, we can't just take it from there and say, okay, uh, we're going to take it uh, starting there. We have to consider all these wonderful blessings that God has given us. We spent a lot of time the last time I spoke talking about these these promises and this freedom from death and how Jesus is our high priest and what that means as the one who intercedes for us and makes offering for sins. So because of all of this awesome stuff, he said in chapter 2, consider him. Consider Jesus. This word consider, I'll get to that in just a second. So first, before he talks about what what we're going to consider, the first verse of Uh, Hebrews chapter 3 says, Therefore, holy brethren. So it's important that we remember who he's addressing. He's addressing the Hebrew Christians, not just Hebrews, and not just Christians. They're Hebrew Christians. So they are brethren. So they're not just people who he's addressing with the gospel at the first time. And this is all linked, also linked back to chapter 2, when he calls them holy brethren, because he said that Jesus is not afraid to call you his brethren. He's not afraid to call us his brothers and sisters. So he's, he's kind of hearkening back to that. And then the second point about this word holy brethren is that these Hebrew Christians needed encouragement. They needed kind of a, a kick in the backside, you know, to, to show them what was right, to show them the reality that they were coming into as, as new followers of this new covenant. They needed the encouragement and they weren't perfect, but they were still holy brethren. He could have come into this letter and just beat them upside the head with the fact that, man, the Son of God just came and you guys are starting to slack in your faith. How in the world could you do that? But he does acknowledge that they're brethren. They're holy brethren. And they're in the middle of a fight. And that is a theme that we can all relate to. We are all in the middle of this fight. And even if we may have struggles, we are holy brethren. So don't count yourself out if you feel like, man, my faith is weak. He wrote this to them because their faith needed to be strengthened. He goes on to say, Holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling. 
So we talked about the other day how there is this great need that man has in, in life. There's, there's this great need to get back to the garden scenario where man was living in peace with God and complete exposure before God. They were together. It was paradise. And this narrative of the Bible is once man gets kicked out of that garden, how do we get back to a place where we are one with God in that, in that perfect place where, where there's no pain and where there's no suffering? And so this, this sentence kind of hits on that, that God's taking care of the two great needs we need. We need to, number one, we need to hear from God. We need to hear from God through his word and through the heavenly calling that he gave to us. But that calling implies that he wants us to do something. He wants us to come to him. He's calling toward us, not just to us. He's calling us to come to him. So this great narrative of what do we do now that we're outside of the garden, separated from God, we need to hear him. We need to hear the calling, and we need to go to God. And because God has made this calling, we are partakers. And because we are holy brethren, remember, to become holy brethren, they're not just first-time hearers of the gospel. They were converted Christians who had uh, been added to the church. Okay, so then he goes in to say, Consider this apostle and high priest of our confession. This word consider means to fix your attention on something to learn its inner meaning. This is a word that was also used by Jesus when he said to consider the ravens in Luke chapter 12. And it implies a context of something that may be so simple and obvious. But if we don't slow down to really think about it, we will miss it entirely. So we need to consider it with contemplation and not necessarily to just find the answer and move on, but to let the process of considering have its work in our hearts. Now, an important note from this is that, remember, let's, let's say it again, they were already Christians. So it's implying that it's not automatic that if we're Christians, we just automatically think about and meditate on Jesus. It's not automatic. He's having to tell them, you have to take thoughtful, considerate time to consider this Jesus. For us, it is not going to automatically happen. It's hard to carve out time where our head can slow down enough and make enough space in our day for clear, thoughtful time to consider Jesus. It's not automatic. But I like this quote I, had, I read on this verse. Someone said, Every meditation on his person, speaking of Jesus, and his salvation will suggest more wisdom, new motives to love, confidence, and obedience. And I think that's very true. There's not everything that can be explained with a step-by-step, -step, here's what you need to do, step A, B, C, and D, then you'll be at this point. Sometimes we need to take time to consider him. And that was part of the prescription for the growth of their faith for the Hebrews. Okay, so he says to consider this apostle. This word apostle is, we might think, well, well, I thought the 12 apostles were the ones following Jesus. Why does he call Jesus an apostle? Well, this word apostle simply means sent one. I think a lot of times we, we hear the title of someone and we, we don't associate the real meaning with it that the Bible uh, had behind it. Apostle means sent one. So Jesus is going to be God's one that he sent to us. So Jesus had 12 apostles that were coming from Jesus to uh, the rest of the world to share Jesus' truth with the world. 
And similarly, like Jesus had his 12 apostles that were sent to the world, God in the beginning sent Jesus, the apostle, to us. So the sent one for our salvation, for our learning, for our teaching. Now, and I, it's easy to be confused between apostles and disciples. Remember, a disciple is, is someone who just follows Jesus. Apostle is someone who is specifically sent for a purpose. So these are both uh, titles that people were specifically sent. Uh, very obviously speak, speaking of Jesus here, he was the chosen uh, sent one from God. Okay, then he mentions uh, him as the high priest. We talked about that in Hebrews chapter 2, what that means. But in summary, the high priest represented the people before God and offered sacrifices for sins. So here in this verse, he's kind of setting up this, this picture. Jesus is both the one who was sent down from God to man. And once he was man, he also made a way to get from man back to God. He is everything in between. He is both the one that's sent to teach and the one who sacrificed himself and mediated for the people to go from man to God. Jesus is God to man and man to God. Fascinating, well-rounded concepts our Savior embodied. Okay, so going into to, uh, verse 2. In this verse, uh, the writer of Hebrews, we don't know who wrote it, remember. Uh, the writer of Hebrews t starts to compare Jesus to the Old Testament greats. So this is going to be a theme throughout a big portion of the book of Hebrews. So they would have known and appreciated and honored their heroes of, heroes of faith in the past. And so he's already, earlier in the book of Hebrews, he's already compared Jesus to angels. Remember, angels were these great, massive, mighty, powerful beasts that they were terrified of. And, and God and the writer of Hebrews says Jesus is a, way above that. And so now he's going to take the, the heroes of faith in the Old Testament and say Jesus is way above that. So here we'll start with Moses. Verse 2. Consider Christ Jesus who was faithful to him who appointed him. As Moses also was faithful in all his house. I read uh, someone was, some sources were saying that the, the Jews considered Moses maybe to be the greatest man who ever lived. And that they, they even thought he was better than an angel. So I don't know uh, how much ground that holds in, in the Jews as a whole. Or what, but they highly, highly regarded Moses. And so the writer of Hebrews is meeting them where they're at. Okay, you understand an angel. You understand Moses. Now Jesus is so far above that. And I like how he, he keys on this idea of faithfulness. A huge part of Moses' credit for being godly was he was faithful through a lot of junk. Leading a million people who are ready to turn on you for 40 years and... and all the things he went through in the Old Testament, it was his faithfulness that stood out. And that's one of the lessons we'll learn from today is the faithfulness that Jesus and Moses both shared. And it says that he was faithful in all of God's house. So verse 3, For this one, speaking of Jesus, has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. As teachers, uh, one of the things we're instructed to do one of the key ideas we're supposed to um, use in our classroom is to take your students from where they're at and then move them forward. If you just try to teach everybody the same way or teach everybody the same thing, you're going to lose 
most of the people. And so I like what the writer of Hebrews does here. He understands his audience. And this is kind of a side point for our own use of spreading the gospel and teaching others about the truth is to remember to meet people where they're at. The writer of Hebrews uses Moses and he uses angels because uh, in, in education they call it accessing prior knowledge. If you can use a starting point for someone, what they do understand, they have a reference point from where to go next. And this writer of Hebrews understood his audience and he was ready to meet them where they were at. Okay, that was kind of a side point. So Jesus is counted worthy of more glory than Moses. We understand what the word glory means. I think it's kind of hard to nail down the definition, but uh, Chris Taylor, a lot of Dodger fans, he got that game-winning home run for the Dodgers the other night. He got a lot of glory for that. Okay, So the, the glory an athlete or someone great gets from doing something awesome, we understand that. So this is in a spiritual sense, and in a, an eternal sense, Jesus is counted of more glory than even Moses, inasmuch as he who built the house has more honor than the house. Okay, so he's saying that Moses was part of the house that God was building, but Jesus was the one building the house. Okay, so, and he's comparing their honor um, because he's saying the one who builds something has more honor than the house itself. And we understand that. So Michelangelo in his Sistine Chapel, he's the one who gets credit for all of the beautiful work he did there. So obviously we don't go, man, Sistine Chapel, you're so awesome on your own merit. You're so great for what you are. We say, wow, he did an incredible piece of work. And if he was there, everyone would be going over shaking his hand and saying how awesome he did. The Eiffel Tower, the man who designed it, Alexandre Eiffel, it is tied to his name, and he's the one who gets credit for that. The tower itself is inanimate. It is just what it is. It's the building. The person who gets the glory and the honor for something is the one who built it. We understand that. And he's saying that Jesus has, he's on a different level because Moses is just the house. He's just part of the building. Frank talked about that a lot in his lesson about how uh, in 1 Peter chapter 2, that we are being built up as a holy house. Well, we're just part of the house. Jesus is the builder. Our God is the builder of this house. Verse 4, for every house is built by someone, but he built all things is God. My, somehow my roof got a little off kilter there, but the house is much better built than that. Verse 4, for every house is... Oh, so... The, the point I was going to pull out here is that he's drawing this, this idea that, that one has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as he who built the house has more glory than the house. And he's saying that every house is built by someone, but he who built all things is God. So he's making the point, he's drawing the conclusion that Jesus is deity. He's not God the Father, but he's deity. He is one of the builders of our holy spiritual house. Okay. He's continuing to lift Jesus up in their eyes so that they revere Jesus and don't slip back to the old law. Continuing on in verse 5. And Moses indeed was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which would be spoken afterward, but Christ as a son over his own house. So again, he could have said a lot of things about Moses. And when we read the Old Testament, uh, we'll talk about that in a minute. There's a lot of things he could have said, maybe to Moses' credit, to his detriment. 
But he talks about him in a positive light here. He's not at all trying to defame Moses or to bring Moses down. That's because his point is not to, to, uh, to berate the humanity of Moses. He's trying to lift Jesus up. So he points out that, hey, he was faithful as a servant. He did a great job as a servant. And it was a testimony of those things which would be spoken afterward. But, but it's not even the same thing. It's apples and oranges. Jesus, it was, but Jesus was a son over the house. He wasn't a servant in God's house. Jesus is a son of the house of God. So they're apples and oranges. They're not even close. Jesus is so far above Moses. And it says that he was a, test, he was a servant as a testimony of those things which would be spoken afterward. I believe that Moses is a great example of the fact that you can be a servant in God's house and receive glory and honor from God and praise and appreciation from God. In the church age, that's especially emphasized. That the things that would be spoken of afterward, the new, the new law and the new covenant, how much you would emphasize service in the Lord's house, Moses was an example of that. And he served as a testimony that that's always been a value in God's kingdom. It's always been powerful in God's kingdom to serve his people. And that was a testimony even in the old law. Okay. So in verse, verse 6, he goes on to say, Whose house we are if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. That is an awesome thought. He already said in the last chapter that he's not ashamed to call us brethren. How awesome that is that, that, that we are God's Sistine Chapel, so to speak. That we are his house. We are his special building. Out of all the, the beautiful works that were out there, God's special work. And his great joy in his work stems from us. Not just from his own beautiful creation that he made. He cares about the people who can turn and praise him. We are that house. And that is a special, awesome thought for us to consider our own importance in the grand scheme of the world. But there's a condition. We are his house if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. That's interesting. The Bible says a lot of different things that you'll be saved if you do this or or you, you, uh, you're one of God's children if you do this. And this is an interesting point he makes here. That we are his house if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope. Philippians chapter 4 verse 4 says, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say rejoice. That is a command to us. We are commanded to be confident and hold on to the rejoicing of our hope. That's not optional. That's essential for our life. That is our oxygen. We must rejoice in the Lord. That is a sign of a healthy Christian. And we can rejoice as part of this house. Moses was just a member of the house. David was a member of the house. You and I are part of this house that God is building up. A royal priesthood. We must rejoice. And you might say, well, can I really control what I hope in? Can I, can I really control what I'm excited for? Because I, I hope things that seem like I don't really control it. It just kind of happens. What I'm hoping for isn't always, you know, I can't tell my mind what hope for. Is that true? 
I believe it is definitely true that we have control in what we hope in. And I believe it's, it's cyclical. This, maybe this is a little rough, but when you think about something a lot, when you consider it a lot like we've been commanded to, when we consider and think about our Savior, and we live the way He wants us to live, we see its fruits. We see what it brings in our life. We see the good that happens and the, the terrible things we can avoid. And we rejoice in that. And that's been, we've been commanded. Maybe we're missing part of this puzzle. And maybe if you feel like you're not in control of what you're hoping in, maybe you're missing one of these pieces. Are you thinking about God's word? And everything I'm talking about today was a direct kick uh, at me, and, and it was a challenge for me. So I'm not talking at you at this. This was a huge uh, challenge for me to step it up. So are you living it? Are you seeing its fruits? Are you taking time to look and see what God is doing? And if you see that, are you rejoicing in that? Are you missing any of the pieces of this cycle that we can hope in God and we can create a cycle where our minds will continue to hope and build faith and trust in Him through a cycle of changing what we have hope in? And we can do that. Okay. Uh, now, verse I mentioned uh, from 1 Peter chapter 2, it said, You also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ Jesus. Okay. Going on in verse 7, it says, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today if you will hear His voice, do not harden your heart as in the rebellion, in the trial of the wilderness, where your fathers tested me, tried me, and saw my works forty years. Therefore I was angry with that generation, and said they always go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. So I swore my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. And this is where it starts to get a little harsh. But the rebellion and the trial are all around the wilderness wanderings in the book of Numbers, where Israel complained against God. So in Numbers chapter 13, there were spies sent into the land. God commanded them to go into the land and take it. And so they sent spies. And it says in the promised land that uh, when they came to the valley of Eskel, and there cut down a branch with one cluster of grapes, they carried it between two of them on a pole. They also brought some of the pomegranates and figs. The place was called the valley of Eskel because of the cluster which the men of Israel cut down there. So in the wilderness, uh, when they were told to go in, uh, into the promised land, they went in and, and took these clusters of grapes. That's, where, that's what the word eskel means. It means cluster. They had to carry it between two of them on a pole. I can't imagine seeing a cluster of grapes that big, even though we're in California. What happened next? Verse 27, then they told him and said, we went to the land where you sent us. It truly flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. And nevertheless, the people who dwell in the land are strong. The cities are fortified and very large. Moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the south. The Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the mountains. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the banks of the Jordan. So they came in and they said, man, this place is everything you talked it up to be. It is unreal. It is awesome. But... They're giants. We're afraid of them. But here's all, the, here's all the reasons that we're scared and we can't maybe trust God to go in. There's too many, too many dangers, too many risks. 
Going on in verse 30, it says, Then Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and take possession. There's a couple guys who are like, No, we got this. Let's go. But then the men who had gone up with him said, We're not able to go up against the people, for they're stronger than we. And they gave the children of Israel a bad report of the land which they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone has, as spies in the land devours inhabitants. And all the people whom we saw in it are men of great stature. They're huge. They're big dudes. There we saw the giants. The descendants of Anak came from the giants. And we were like grasshoppers in our own sight. And so we were in their sight. They said, we walked in and we thought we, they, we were grasshoppers compared to them. And they thought we were grasshoppers compared to them. We were all in agreement. We were small. We did not look good. Uh, it does not look good for us to go up against them. So there's these positive and negatives. Some people who want to go in, some people are, are not faithful. And this is where all the wondering started. This is where God's saying, you frustrated me to no end. You were never faithful. You always went away from me. And it started with this one lack of faith. One of the lessons we can learn from this is that there will always be at least two ways to look at every situation. There will be the positive, hopeful, and full of faith in God's ability to act. There will be that position in every situation we're in. There's also going to be the perceived risks, worries, and the if this, then, that we can come up with in our minds. We can apply this to a lot of different things. But whatever situation we get into in our individual lives, in our church, there's always going to be both of these. They weren't wrong that the giants were huge. And on their own, they could have been defeated very quickly and easily. They were huge. They would have gotten wiped out on their own. But the difference is God wanted them to see him as greater than every concern and worthy of their faith. Okay, so there may be things that are true. It may be true that, hey, this looks bad. This looks difficult. This looks hard. There's a lot of risks here. But there's always going to be risks. God's people succeed when they, when they take the positive hope and fullness of faith. And they're aware of the perceived risks. And they overcome that by an awareness of God's power and his ability to act. So may we always look at God and let him develop a faith within us that responds. Okay, another side point. He talks about Moses' faithfulness. Moses at age 40... He mustered up the strength to choose God's people. So he, he decided to leave Egypt and say, you know, I'm going to support my people. He, he went out and defended one of his own people, the Israelites, and it did not go well. That was at 40 years old. He finally, at 40 years old, after a long time, uh, almost twice my lifetime, he was finally like, all right, I got to do something. He got out and did something, and it didn't go well. And he was out in the wilderness. He went off on his own. At age 80 was when the burning bush situation happened where God called him back and said, you're going to go now. And even when he was finally called to do that, man, Moses didn't look good. That's not the point of Hebrews chapter 3, but Moses did not look good. He was like, well, I can't because of this. I can't because of this. And there's this risk and that risk. So Hebrews 3 is talking about the good things in Moses, but as a side point for us, look how long it took for Moses to get started. He was 80 before he really got started. But he started. And that's a point that we need to remember. We got a lot of people in here. 
and different points in life, no matter where you're at, you can get started today. We can get started wherever we're at. And Moses is a great example of that because the testimony after that, he was faithful. And that's what he was remembered for, even by the scriptures. Okay, quickly going on. Verse 12, Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God, but exhort one another daily while it's called today. I like that. We don't have tomorrow, we don't have the past, but we do have today. Take what you got today, encourage and exhort one another while it's still called today. The beauty of that is every day is called today. When you get to tomorrow, it'll be called today then, and we have a chance every day to make it what it can be, to exhort one another. He says, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. While it is said, today if you'll hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. He's saying kind of the same thing. He's emphasizing, don't let your hearts get hard. And kind of the antidote he said for being hardened through the deceitfulness of sin, it was what he just said. He said, exhort one another daily. And I'm so thankful God gave us a body. He gave us a church to be exhorted daily so that we don't get hardened. Because the reality is sin will deceive us to where we don't even see ourselves anymore. To where we don't, don't even see ourselves changing. We have to talk to somebody else. And somebody else can see the change in us and say, hey, come on, let's go get, get back on the right track. Or hey, you're doing a good job. Keep, keep the faith. You're doing, you're doing good work. God is brilliant in, in the design in his body for support for one another. May we take advantage of that. May we exhort one another daily. That's something I need to be better about. I think the quarantine kind of kept us all a little bit separated, but we have ways. May we exhort one another daily. So uh, we're coming really close to the end. I saw this, uh, this little, I don't know, it, was, it was kind of a, I don't know, it's, a, it's a story basically from a demon's point of view on the persistence of faith. And, and this, someone wrote this, it's a fictional uh, perspective from a demon tempting a person uh, t- tempting a Christian. And so it's a demon either thinking to himself or talking to another demon. Uh, listen to this. It says, The enemy has guarded him from you, so the enemy being God, has guarded him from you through the first great wave of temptations. But if only he can be kept alive, you have time itself for your ally. The long, dull, monotonous years of middle-aged prosperity or middle-aged diversity are excellent campaigning weather. You see, it's so hard for these creatures to persevere. The routine of adversity, the gradual decay of youthful loves and youthful hopes, the quiet despair, hardly felt as pain, of ever overcoming the chronic temptations with which we have again and again defeated them, the drabness which we create in their lives, and inarticulate resentment with which we teach them to respond to it. All of this provides admirable opportunities of wearing out a soul by attrition. Attrition means you just break them down. Just slowly take away their food and water in a war of attrition. You just cut off their resources. Of wearing out a soul by attrition. If, on the other hand, the middle years from prosperous, our position is even stronger. Prosperity knits a man to the world. He feels that he's finding his place in the he's finding his place in it, while really it's finding its place in him. 
That is why we must often wish long life to our patients. Seventy years is not a day too much for the difficult task of unraveling their souls from heaven and building up a firm attachment to the earth. It's sometimes it's interesting to think about stuff like that. The demon's perspective, maybe, I don't know if someone came up with this, but it's true, isn't it? Some of those words, the inarticulate resentment that we can build, that, that Satan wants us to develop in our hearts, that's what the devil wants. That's what his helpers want. The challenge for the Christian is to remain faithful and full of exhortation and encouragement for one another as we fight against him. Faithfulness is a heroic act. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 11, I think it's 11 verse 2 maybe. By faith Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshipped, leaning on the top of his staff. This study has made me think and really appreciate all the people in this audience who have continued to hold the faith strong. That last thing we read about the difficulties of life over time, wearing down someone's faith and discouraging people and trying to, to undermine the spiritual strength that God wants us to have. I have a renewed appreciation for the older folks and in the middle-aged, as the, you know, the, the demon was saying, who are continuing to fight and hold on to the faith. I appreciate you very much. Because faithfulness is a heroic act. And I, that picture of Joseph in the Old Testament worshiping, leaning on the top of his staff is one of the coolest pictures of faithfulness in the Bible that I can read. There is value in faith, in faith's longevity, because we are told to be steadfast to the end in our faithfulness, in our rejoicing in hope. And this passage shows it's exemplified in both Moses and Jesus, Jesus being so much better for so many reasons. Okay, finishing up, verse 16. For who, having heard, rebelled? Indeed, was it not all who came out of Egypt led by Moses? Now with whom was he angry forty years? Was it not those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? But to those who did not obey. So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. So all the words highlighted in this passage are kind of connected. They have a common root, it says in Hebrews 3, of unbelief. These people did not have a belief inside them that was strong enough. Now people say, see, you just need to believe. You don't have to obey. And see, this is the whole point is believing. Well, the point is they're all connected. You can't really have one without the other. He says they didn't obey, and it was connected to their unbelief. They sinned, and it was connected to their unbelief. And it's interesting that they came out of Egypt. Egypt is a picture of leaving sin. They came out of Egypt, but they still fell into unbelief. That's kind of a, a sobering thought for us. We can still fall into unbelief, and we can be hardened. Now, this is, this is a lot of negative. Chapter 3 ends right here. Chapter 4 is going to go on to talk about the rest that's coming. So it's, I wish we could just keep going to really get the whole picture, but this is where we're going to stop today. Uh, in Hebrews chapter 3, ending with kind of a warning. But it's also a reminder that we should consider how great Jesus is and that we don't want any part of that, the unbelief and the consequences from it. So today, we learn that Jesus was faithful. And I ask you and I ask myself to consider our own faithfulness to him. Faithfulness is a heroic act that takes a lot of time. 
I ask you, along with me, to consider our own willingness to take risk and grow. Because in that passage where their faithfulness was a problem, it had a lot to do with they weren't willing to take a risk and grow. So it's not just staying where they were. Staying faithful isn't just putting your feet in the ground and sitting there. Faithfulness implies a willing to take risk and grow like Caleb did. He was like, no, we can go into this land. We can get this. We got this. I ask you to consider both areas of these in your life. Maybe one of these is easier for you than the other. But a full, rounded faith will be faithful and willing to grow at the same time and ready to take on challenges. Jesus was similar to Moses in several ways, but he was on a whole nother level. So these questions, are you taking time out of your day to consider him, to consider Jesus? Are you rejoicing in your hope? This is a strong command that he indicates will affect our own participation in the household of God if we're rejoicing him steadfast to the end. And are you encouraging others daily? Please think about these things with me. This is our lesson today. I hope you can take it and, uh, and we can grow together as we seek to serve him from the things we've learned in Hebrews chapter 3. We thank you for listening to our podcast put on by the Church of Christ at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield. If you would like any additional information or you would like to receive a free Bible correspondence course by mail, please email us at info at churchofchristbakersfield.com. Our service times are Sundays at 1030 a.m. and 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 730 p.m. Please make plans to join us. We would love for you to be our honored guest.